This is Episode 5 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. How long were you in Springfield? Oh, about two and a half years. I've, I've said, I, I learned the, 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 the definition of success in Illinois state government is to get out before the indictments arrive. And I just, uh, I just made it. Um, and it's bipartisan, by the way, the last two governors. No, no, obviously, I don't want people that Pat Quinn has is, is, is beaten the rap, but, but before him, when I was there, you had a Republican governor and then, of course, a Democratic governor, um, part of a long and ignoble tradition. I once... Who went to prison. Who went to prison. Yeah. I once proposed, half seriously, doing a conference called what is it about Illinois? <laughs> well, neither the people in the room were not amused. <laughs> well, that way, now, George Ryan was the Republican. George Ryan was, yeah, the Republican governor. He'd been Secretary of State and um, Republican governor. And then, of course, Rod Bogoyevich, who'd been a congressman. Who's still in prison. Who is still in prison. After that, what year did you leave there and where did you go? Well, that's interesting because that, um, that's when I did my... Uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance leap off the cliff um, without Butch. I mean, I I uh, left Springfield with really nothing lined up um, early in 1996. Now, I say nothing lined up. One important thing lined up, and you, of course, were a significant part of that, was I, I'd been offered a, a position at uh, George Mason University as a scholar in residence, and um, with considerable latitude, I taught a course on the presidency for the next eight years, which I think was probably about three years too long. I think uh, I noticed there were changes in the student body. I mean, I I, um, sort of naively thought that other people thought that the Arthur Schlesinger model of the presidency was prevalent. What's that mean? And I mean by that, that in the 20th century, the presidency evolved from being an administrative to a position of advocacy, particularly moral advocacy, that power flowed to Washington, um, in part because of the Depression, in part because of two world wars, that um, that power was personalized in the presidency, and that uh, presidents who could take advantage of that and, above all, take advantage of the media opportunities, Harry Truman said the, the chief function of the modern presidency is persuasion. Well, it was the great persuaders. So it was T.R., F.D.R., Wilson, uh, Truman, Kennedy, um, Dislingree Johnson, um, Reagan. But, I mean, the idea strong presidents, presidents who put their stamp upon the age, presidents who overawed Congress, presidents who dictated, in a very real sense, to the media. And they had these tools. I mean, Richard Nixon, as late as 1970, could call three men in three towers in Manhattan, the networks, and have an audience of 70 million people to listen to whatever he had to say that same night. And the only counter 
to that was, you know, lonely Eric Severide on CBS offering what was called instant analysis. And that, in many ways, was the apogee of the Schlesinger slash Roosevelt model of, of the presidency. By contrast, and I think this began to reflect itself in, in, the, in the opinions, the attitudes of students. First of all, there, there is definitely a libertarian streak among young people today. Um, there is um, an almost intrinsic distrust of government, a disbelief, for example, that Social Security will be there, let alone, I mean, their grandparents voted faithfully Democratic as part of the New Deal coalition to preserve the gains they had made during the New Deal. Well, 50, 60 years later, the New Deal is something, a name in the history books. It's Ronald Reagan, not Franklin Roosevelt, who defined their view of government. Um, so, you know, that, that really crept into the classroom. And that's fine. I mean, I was perfectly comfortable um, with, a, with, you want a, a range of opinion. But I noticed at the end, at the, I think I probably got a little stale. Um, you know, you become the prisoner of your yellow legal pad notes, which is a, a, the great danger, I think, in, in teaching. Um, but I also noticed, um, to be perfectly honest with you, at the end, at the very end, um, there were people who were just not interested. There, there were people who were sitting in front of a screen all evening. And I don't know, they were I doubt if they were taking notes, you know. I mean, um, we, we've become prisoners of screens. Um, I am um, not a Luddite, I don't think. I never thought of myself as one. But I will sound like one when I rail against the uh, negative impact of the, of the Internet on life generally, on politics in particular, and I suspect on, um, on academic, academics. We'll come back to all this, uh, but there's a book we missed in there. What year did you do the Colonel McCormick book, and where did you live, and why did you do that book? Well, I was in Abilene doing the Eisenhower Centenary and the Hoover Reconstruction, and I was contacted by Jack McCutcheon. Jack McCutcheon's father was a, a Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune. And Jack had become sort of graduated to archivist, if you will, historian of the paper. In those days, all the archives were in Tribune Tower in downtown Chicago. And um, he had read the Hoover book. And I, I suspect, he never said this, but I, I think he thought, boy, if this guy can make Hoover look sympathetic, then, then maybe he could do the same for the colonel, who lent himself to caricature. Who, by the way, who colonel was Colonel Robert R. McCormick was, for 40 years, synonymous with the Chicago Tribune, the world's greatest newspaper. In popular legend, he is a bombastic, xenophobic, um, right of Attila the Hun, caricature. Um, his rivals, in fact, at the Chicago uh, Daily News, came up with a, a long-running cartoon series about Colonel McCosmic, um, which, which played off of this. Um, 
Now, the minute you run into caricature, you know, bells ought to go off. There is something about this personality vivid enough, unique enough, distinctive enough, and perhaps interesting enough to inspire caricature. Caricature, after all, caricature is a form of flattery. And um, so I was open. I wasn't eager. I mean, I, I, the colonel was a virulently anti-British, and I'm a anglophone or phone, as you know, um, a great lover of all things British. Um, and he was certainly um, outspoken. For example, in his opposition to U.S. involvement in World War II, which seemed to me to be terribly wrong-headed. Anyway, I mean, I bought into enough of the caricature to be leery. But anyway, Jack said, why don't you come into town one day? I should point out, by the way, my best friend and college roommate, Steve Chapman, was and is a nationally syndicated columnist for the Tribune. So there was that connection as well. Anyway, McCutcheon said, come into the tower and look at some of this stuff. No one had seen the paper. The colonel died, um, in appropriate enough, on April Fool's Day, 1955. In fact, it was said that many people attended the funeral just to make sure that he wasn't pulling a joke on them. In any event, I uh, went downtown, I looked at this stuff, and it only took one visit to say, this, this is dynamite. I mean, um, they had oral histories, so you know, with people who were obviously gone. They had uh, the colonel's own... I mean, the, the, the colonel was as opinionated in his private correspondence as he was on his editorial page. And, you know, that's just... You know, that's a biographer's dream. Um, and he was, he was colorful, he was outrageous, he was flamboyant. But I thought I saw beyond that the shy, socially awkward, rather unloved second son of a horrible dragon mother and ineffectual father. I mean, the, the family, uh, I think, probably first ignited my interest. Anyway, I said, this is, this is intriguing. Um, and I, I learned after the fact. I wonder why they were so... See, the, the, the Tribune's 150th anniversary was coming up. And the last thing the world needed was another corporate history of the Tribune. So the alternative was, well, maybe enough time has gone by, you know, 40 years on, that we can approach the otherwise radioactive ghost of the colonel. I learned after the fact, he's now gone, so I can tell the story, Stan Cook, who was a delightful, thoroughly Midwestern CEO of Tribune Company. Stan Cook called the archives before they agreed to give me access and said, all right, what's in there that's going to embarrass us? And, and there was a safe literally, that had, you know, the goods. And actually, I found more than that was in the safe. But they said, well, you know, um, the colonel had a mistress. Um, and he said, well, you know, um, who's on the Tribune payroll? And I said, well, you know, we can deal with that. He said, yeah, but she you know, stayed on the payroll after he died. He said, well, you know, we could, we could deal with that. 
that, well, the colonel's father died of syphilis. What they didn't say was, just to give you a flavor of this family, this bizarre family, the colonel's father, Robert Sanderson McCormick, with the paper's influence, bought diplomatic appointments. He was kind of a near-to-well, so he was made ambassador to Russia, which, which made the colonel later on befriended the czar and became the only American correspondent on the Eastern Front in World War One. Well, anyway, okay, so <laughs> needless to say, the colonel's parents did not have a, an idyllic marriage. His mother, who really was a dragon, writes a letter to him one day, to, the, to her son, Bertie, as he was known. He was the second son. He had an older brother, Medill, who was being groomed to take over. Medill um, subsequently became a United States Senator from Illinois. Is that the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern? Well, that's his grandfather, Joseph Medill, mm -hmm. who was Lincoln's contemporary, um, and whose house the colonel rebuilt and turned around uh, because he didn't like noise from Roosevelt Road. Anyway, um, <laughs> Medill became a senator, had one term, lost in the primary, committed suicide, which was a family secret for, for many years. In any event, um, the, uh, this only reinforced, one day the letter comes from, the, from Medill's daughter, who is the colonel's mother. I have the most remarkable news. It's written in almost jubilant spirit. Your father has syphilis. The reason why this was good news was because Kate McCormick had convinced herself that there was, as she put it, a soft spot in the McCormick brain, and that this was there was this generic, you know, um, condition. Well, anyway, um, just to complete this, the, the Colonel um, defied his mother by falling in love with his cousin's wife who was, among other things, eight years his senior. I mean, any Freudian would perceive maternal instincts. And, you know, the colonel never had children. And I think it's because he had such a miserable childhood of his own. But anyway, so Amy Adams, to whom the colonel's mother referred to her as the old tart. And there were these wonderful letters where she's railing against the old tart. She's never going to get a stick of my furniture, etc., etc. So what does the mother do? She wants to separate her son from the old tart. So she pulls strings with the Tsar of Russia. And they send Bertie via London to St. Petersburg to, to be a correspondent, you know, get, get him away from the old tart. What she didn't know, of course, the Tsar agreed, um, was, you know, 10 days after he sailed for London, uh, the old tart followed by prearrangement. They were married very quietly in, uh, in London. And uh, any, anyway, you can imagine. But I mean, th this family, I remember I called the first chapter Splendid Monsters, because that's really what they were. And he, he, he grew up surrounded by these people. Which would explain and probably almost justify almost any eccentricity, you know, of his own in in later years. What I thought, what I, I guess, what I have a talent for is seeing, in a sense, the emotionally deprived, the poignant, um, 
See, I looked at Robert McCormick and saw not just a, a crazed right-winger who despised his grotten classmate, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, the day that FDR died, the colonel went around Tribune Tower handing out $10 bills to people. Um, he called home, and his second wife, Marilyn, said, you know, what should we do? We have a dinner party scheduled tonight. And he said, that's fine, we'll go ahead with it. Um, but we'll, we, <laughs> we won't drink a Montrachet. I said, I, would, I wouldn't want people thinking <laughs> that we were drinking a Montrachet. Um, and then she said, well, what about the flag, you know, on the flagpole outside the library? Um, you know, they're supposed to fly at half-staff. He said, that's fine. There's no one I'd rather fly a flag at half-staff for. So anyway, I mean, that's, you know, you could, you could, you could dwell on that and, and see the colonel as a grotesque. Or, without neglecting that side of him, you, you could look for the more human and vulnerable side. And I thought this was a man who had no family of his own, really. I found the notes compiled by his doctor. In fact, they were given to me at his deathbed, in which his second wife, Marilyn, is saying, Oh, Bertie, you know you're going to die. Why are you taking so long? <laughs> I mean, because okay. they just say she wanted the Tribune. In the other room is the management of the Tribune, scared to death that she's going to get this sick man to sign away the newspaper. I mean, it's a comedy, but it's a tragedy you know, at the same time. But anyway, the scene that will stick with me is every Christmas Eve, where was Bertie McCormick? Not at home. He was uh, in the printing press in formal formally dressed, walking up and down, wishing each of the men a Merry Christmas. I mean, he had this very paternalistic sense. That was his family, like the first division with which he fought in World War I. They were his family. Well, that humanizes him. That's like George Washington. Forget false teeth or Sally Fairfax, you know? I mean, the, the way you humanize Washington, you know, is to, is to follow him day by day through the last year of his life when he's most vulnerable. I mean, so I guess that's the first thing that I, and, and ultimately the last thing that I look for, and in choosing a biographical subject, if I don't think that's there. You know, there are very, very few people with whom, I suppose it's like marriage, there are very few people in the world with whom you want to um, live in the kind of enforced intimacy that biography requires. What year was that book out? That book appeared in 1997. What book was next? <laughs> well, um, let's see. The Rockefeller. And that year was? 2014. It took uh, 14 years to do. The McCormick had taken seven. But again, I was you know, working full-time. Um, and the Rockefeller, the first half of those 14 years, I was working full-time. So, but again, and, that, and then it became, of course, a question of traveling to New York, um, the Rockefeller archives, which at that point were being opened. There was a... Um, 
um, an earlier biographer, a man named Carrie Reich, who uh, wrote a wonderful first volume of what was projected to be a, a two or even three volume life published by Doubleday. Um, and, and, and it took Rockefeller up to his election as governor of New York in 1958. And then tragically, Kerry um, went to the doctor one day and um, was diagnosed, I believe it was stomach cancer, and, and passed away within a matter of weeks. And so um, he left this unfinished. So, you know, when I talked to publishers, the question was, well, you know, do you want to finish Carrie's book? I said, with all due respect, um, I, I want to do the whole life. Um, I think I'd have my own take on it. And, and that's, uh, you know, I recommend Carrie's book to anyone. It's, it's a wonderful book. And it's a great loss that we didn't get a sequel. But in any event... Um, it took 14 years. It took more. I think it, <laughs> it shortened my life by 14 years. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.